0: This is episode 256 of The Stem Cell Podcast, Epigenetics and Reprogramming with Dr. Jose Polo. Hey everybody, we are Dalon and Arun. Welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, please rate us and leave a review. We're also always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Jose Polo from the University of Adelaide. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on reprogramming somatic cells into induced pluripotent stem cells, amongst many other research foci. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming right up.
1: But first, are you attending an upcoming cell or gene therapy conference? Enter to win one of three 500 US dollar awards from Stem Cell Technologies toward your conference travel or registration fee. The contest closes on December 15th, 2023, and is open to residents of select countries only. Full eligibility rules can be found on the registration form. You can visit www.stemcell.com slash CGTAward to learn more. All right, get right into it. Like you mentioned, the guest for today is Jose Polo, who has an expertise in all things IPS for programming, pluripotent stem cell survival a lot of different stuff with early embryo modeling that they've been working on. And the first paper I'm going to talk about is a, I guess you could think about like an, it's a, it's a developmental story, but one with a lot of application. And this is an area of study that we love to cover in terms of chimerism, you know, chimeric animals that have a lot of applications, potentially for therapeutic applications, you know, transplantation. Um, The dream is to create say pigs that have, humanized hearts or humanized livers whatever that could be used for transplanting into humans to alleviate of course the organ shortage crisis which we know is certainly a crisis so you know there's a a need for for further study in this area and we need a formal demonstration that million pluripotent stem cells can possess some pre-implantation embryonic cell life or in other words naive pluripotency um, and, and you need to demonstrate this, in the bona fide way to demonstrate this is through the generation of chimeric animals, okay? So part of this paper is validating the ability of these monkey-naive pluripotent stem cells to actually give rise to a true animal, all right? So that's, I mean, the, that's the title of the paper. It's Live Birth of Chimeric Monkey with High Contribution from Embryonic Stem Cells, specifically naive embryonic stem cells, okay? This is a cell paper, and it's a pretty high-profile study that's gotten a lot of press, so we can dive right into it. And so whereas, you know, these naive pluripotency conditions have been pretty well demonstrated in rodents, now we're taking this up a notch. We're going to non-human primates, okay? So poor chimerism has been achieved with other species, including non-human primates, due to the inability of the donor cells to actually match to the developmental state of the host embryo. So there's like kind of a temporal, spatiotemporal temporal mismatch that's occurring during the early development process, specifically in the non-human primates. And part of this has to do with the culture conditions. Part of this has to do with the timing. So they're addressing a lot of this here. And, and that's that was really their key here. They're not the first folks to attempt something like this, but I think this is the the furthest it's gone and the, perhaps the most successful You know, this non-human primate chimerism has been. So they systematically tested a bunch of different culture conditions for establishing monkey naive embryonic stem cells, and then optimized the procedures for actually doing the the chimerism approach and the embryo culture. Okay, And ultimately, (laughs) again, a lot of brute force. We've talked about this a lot before on the show. These chimerism approaches are heavy, heavy brute force approaches. The efficiency of the process is still extremely low. And even here, the efficiency was low, but they were able to get Something down the road, and and you know, two animals in particular that they're going to be highlighting here in the study. So ultimately, this approach that they did with modifying the culture additions and the the manipulation and all that, ultimately, their approach generated one an aborted fetus of the the monkey, which was chimeric, and two, the most exciting thing and the most striking animal was this live chimeric monkey with high donor cell contribution. And the donor cells that they used in the study were simply GFP positive. Okay, so they didn't ablate anything to eliminate, like, say, a heart niche and then complement it with another population. All they did was at the early, I think, blastocyst stage, injected some GFP positive, naive monkey embryonic stem cells into the host and see if they complemented it and integrated and generated a chimeric animal. And they had one, repeat, one live birth here. But that live birth, was really cool, um, to say the least. You can see some of the images here, and this is an open source paper, so you can anybody can dive into it. Um, the the This baby monkey was green all over, like literally all over. Its its irises were green, GFP. Its fingertips were green. Um, unfortunately, the animal wasn't able to survive very long, I believe, due to respiratory failure. And I don't know if that had something to do with the chimerism process or. If it was a one-off, but after the animal succumbed, um, they harvested the organs and actually did uh, the tissue sectioning and found that that GFP signal was literally everywhere. So the, the level of chimerism in this non-human primate was extremely high. And for all intents and purposes, I think the highest we've ever been able to get. So this is, um, this is a really important study. It's one of those milestone studies, I think in chimerism studies and also in in the studies of naive embryonic stem cells, that really demonstrates the the potential of this cell population. And the next question is ultimately, how do you get this process more efficient? And that's the the next step for for this group and other groups around the world who are going to be working on this this particular area. But the images are just so so striking here. It was uh, really cool to see.
0: Yeah, it was bonkers, man. You sent me that picture. That- monkey brain was like visibly visibly green and uh, i'm not surprised that the monkey didn't survive frankly because you've got to be pretty banged up when you can see the fluorescent protein you know uh but i, I don't know I, my the questions that i'm I'm left with are a little bit of like granted yeah i think you emphasize the 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 proof of principle in terms of validating the the cells i think that was a real key takeaway to me I don't know that they made any claims about like the the practicality of this for generating um transgenic animals or chimeric animals for like monkey lines, so to speak, for testing that are genetically modified. I don't know that it's practical in the current state it's such a heavy lift, which i applaud, but as you said, the one live birth and even that was clearly not viable um in the super high abortion rate, so I just wonder if. You know, haven't haven't we already got there with just like direct, directly genetically modifying uh single cell or you know early stage pre-implantation embryos using CRISPR and all the evolution of the CRISPR? I mean, we've done that in human, granted, at a very, you know, circumscribed locus, but I could see with the advance of the technology delivering larger cargo. To the gene to the genome and to genetically modify animals i'm sure that's been done i just can't recall exactly who, who's done it so i don't know in terms of generating transgenic colonies that this is this is the way to go about it but i think yeah like the one it's just a, a measure of the amazing persistence uh and dedication of the group so you gotta you know applaud that because i'm sure this has been the the, the culmination of probably close to a decade of attempts um continuous work at this. It's really uh, amazing. And yeah, uh, these cells work. And if you can use this as a platform, maybe to optimize the culture conditions, that would be another great positive takeaway for me, is not using this for the practical endpoint, but using this as a platform um, to explore what, how can you get these cells, these naive cells to more efficiently uh, cooperate in this context with the host, and therefore that would probably speak to their you know potency and utility in more therapeutic applications so definitely a key advance very impressive the work of you know probably many years many people very impressive
1: yeah totally and i, I just want to reiterate what you're saying this is i think first and foremost just a proof of concept i don't think anybody's really immediately looking at this with a translational I certainly. And if you want to make a green monkey, there are easier ways to make green monkeys, right? You can just genetically modify at a much earlier stage as opposed to doing this complementation sort of approach. And uh, the other part of it is generating um, monkeys for therapeutic applications, harboring, say, human organs is ethically very charged. And I think that's part of the reason that we're taking the the pig-based approach anyways. But yeah, totally agree with you. I think a really cool proof of concept, if nothing else.
0: Yeah. And it takes me back. You know, I've said it before on the show, talked about my many uh, failed attempts at the mouse human chimera using injection of human embryonic stem cells, which now, you know, couple decades later seems hugely misguided and ridiculously ambitious um but yeah it takes me back to the good old days of you know throwing it all at the wall and this story that i'm going to tell you about is a similar thing you know it's been such a i don't know i mean we talked before the show these stories do come out from time to time where it's a kind of a recipe story how do you make a, a specific cell type you know at this point they become more and more esoteric uh, as you really have nailed down uh, really clean recipes for the most therapeutically uh, viable or, or useful, I don't know what you want to call it, the the, the, high, the big targets uh, we've gone after, you know, beta cells, cardiomyocytes, etc. Um, but there's a lot of cell types in the body, right? Uh, and this story from Nature Biotech, uh, and biotech typically, you know, when they put out a story, it's because it has it's something that a lot of people are gonna cite a lot of people are gonna use um and in this case, I could see I could see how that is also true. It's a story about uh nor norepinephrine all right also known as noradrenaline or more commonly just adrenaline right uh and it's made by these norepinephrine n- neurons that are localized in the locus coruleus i didn't know that that exists i'm not an anatomist so that's not surprising i didn't know about it but it sounds so cool would have thought it'd be on my radar anyway these norepinephrine neurons in the locus coruleus are scant there's like a max fifty thousand of them um in the human brain but they project to everywhere in the brain there's all these axonal branches that get everywhere um and as you know they've been really popularly Represented, they're involved in arousal, wakefulness, also the memory, focus, attention, and of course, fight or flight. Uh, and though you might not expect it, you think it's you know more of a action type uh, cell, uh, and it's not really implicated in disease. Actually, there's a lot of neurological disorders that um, show some complications with these with the norepinephrine system including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, but also even like ADHD, as you might uh, expect, or anxiety and depression, like that totally makes sense. Um, so these LC neurons are the locus coeruleus uh, norepinephrine neurons. In the context of these neurodegenerative diseases, uh, they go away really early, um, but it's not sure why they're the first or early targets. Maybe it's because of all those axonal branches and how pervasive they are. But it's not clear why, um, and also not clear like wh- how that's relevant, how their loss really uh, contributes to the progression of disease. Um, and of course, like many of these studies that that were hindered, and now the door has been kicked open by pluripotent stem cells. Uh, we now have a potential source for getting these, whereas they there wasn't before. You know, there were these cell lines uh, that you know the problem with cell lines. I don't have to say. Also, you could like get forced expression of these norepinephrine-specific transcription factors that worked in mouse embryonic stem cells uh, to endow them with some of the capabilities. Um, But weirdly, uh, but not at all unexpectedly, some of the pathways that are thought to promote this fate in mouse embryonic stem cells, namely the BMP7, uh, had like the opposite effect in in the human system. So uh, getting truly bona fide human Locus coeruleus norepinephrine neurons haven't been able to do that before. Until now, uh, we got this story, which is from Suchun Zhang's lab uh, at the University of Wisconsin Madison, where they're still, you know, you know, plugging away at making recipes. It all started there with human embryonic stem cells, and they're they're still working on it. Hey, what's up, Tanil? Uh, over there in uh, the Zhang lab. They developed a method, and this is this is why it's so high profile. A method for getting forty to sixty percent. I mean, neural differentiation protocols are pretty robust, but still, like half of the culture were these uh, locus coeruleus norepinephrine neurons, um, and they showed that similar arborization that you see in, in, in C two in, in you know the physiological context. Uh, but they also could release and uptake norepinephrine. Uh, they looked using single-cell-seq, single-nucleus-seq in this case, to show that they you know, conferred, they, they had the same or uh, endowed with the same identity, uh, bona fide. Um, and also were able to show the differentiation trajectory and identified that they went via this ASCL1 expressing precursor. So the lineage hierarchy there and a little bit of mechanism in terms of the diff. Um, and then this is a, probably another reason why it's in biotech and why it'll be heavily cited and maybe used is that they built in this, with genetic modification, this uh, sensor that was able to report the extracellular levels of norepinephrine with like GFP. So we get brighter with GFP as they saw norepinephrine, which is key in terms of using these cells in any kind of model system, which is the application ultimately. And while we're talking about uh, Nature Biotech and the citation is that this is presumably something that could be applied right now out of the box uh, in trying to understand um, drug screening and the effect on these specific neuron populations in in the context of health and in these neurodegenerative diseases. So uh, an old school study recipe story from biotech, uh, but I think with uh, major implications and, and breadth and importance.
1: Yeah, no surprises this is coming from Wisconsin, and because Wisconsin, as we know, is where the OG differentiation gurus are, right? Like, those folks have been really fine-tuning the differentiation protocols for for so so long and still working on it it seems like and uh, part of it is I for one, I agree with you I didn't really know about these these neurons, but they seem exceptionally important, right? I mean these are characteristics associated with these neurons like fight or flight memory, focus and attention, even regula- regulating cardiac output these are fundamental to life (laughs) and so perhaps the thought is that these neurons evolved very early on during evolution and are perhaps pretty well conserved so it's kind of cool to to see this population finally being established in in vitro culture even if there's not that many of them in the the brain in the spinal column but it seems like they're exceptionally important i think they're rightfully publishing this in nature biotech because it has a lot of downstream potential um, and, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens next year and we'll see what other cell types are going to be in, uncovered by these differentiation gurus at Wisconsin, right?
0: Yeah. And elsewhere. I mean, that's, uh, I was just thinking, not just in the brain, I'm not a brain guy. I'm just, just kind of intimidated by the brain, if I'm honest, but, um, you know, in my own field, there's all these cell types that, uh, it's not that anybody's forgotten about them. It's just, I didn't realize there was still an appetite maybe for these deep differentiation protocols, but, you know in the course of development uh and organogenesis it's not just the progenitors but all the downstream intermediates and their derivatives like you know they say 300 plus cell types in the body but there's a lot of nuance between them for me it, it makes me excited about my development my own protocols for looking for example uh, all the the breadth of possibility in the ovary you know there's a lot of different cell types that contribute to ovarian follicle development i could tell stories but you know we haven't really started to look at it from that top-down perspective of human embryonic stem cell differentiation so it shows that there's still an appetite and that all these cells uh, we can arrive at if we've got the right protocols in this case we were laughing before uh, the show because in this case what did it amount to active in a <laughs> <laughs> yeah active in
1: a who, who would have thought right um, I totally agree with you i mean there there's that number three hundred cell types in the human body, but perhaps that's sort of semantics, right, because you also have to consider the gradient of cell types that emerge during development, and perhaps that number is infinite it's uh kind of scary to think about <laughs> anyways moving on to uh, another chimerism story that's the second story that I'm going to be talking about here in the roundup which is a, a dev cell story and this is a running meme on the podcast now that we love dev cell shout out to dev cell and if the editor in chief which I still need to look up who it is um, if you're interested in being on the show please reach out we'd love to have you because we love covering your papers so this is a paper coming from the lab of uh, Zabir Arangulan over in the program of regenerative medicine in the University of Navarra in Spain. So shout out to them for this really cool study and a very important, perhaps slightly more translational than the previous chimerism study, the, the complementation study that I was talking about, um, generation of heart and vascular system in rodents by blastocyst complementation. And because it's a heart and vascular story, you know we're all about this since you're the endothelial guru, I'm the heart aficionado. So this is perfect for us to talk about. Um, So, you know, like I just talked about in the very beginning of the roundup here, there's an interest in developing model systems and approaches to generate an unlimited number of organs for transplantation humans, and one thought is maybe you could do that using of a non-human system a pig or whatever and you know to study how these processes actually happen how this complementation and chimerism actually occurs you got to use the rodent system too and folks such as Hiro nakauchi decade ago at stanford you know really pioneered some of the initial approaches in 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 mouse rat complementation and chimerism i believe famously they had a a mouse rat pancreatic chimera which is uh, got a lot of press at the time Um, And this is extending that and generating something similar with the heart, for example. So here they actually used a lineage specific cell ablation system to create first mouse embryos that aren't able to form both the cardiac and the vascular systems. Okay. So this is a... Uh, knocking out a gene using diphtheria toxin, um, NKX2.5 is the particular protein, which is one of the cardiac master developmental regulators. So they knocked that out using an NKX2.5 Creed diphtheria toxin approach, and then, first in their intra-species blastocyst complementation approach, they rescued that cardiac loss by you know, injecting um, um, uh, embryonic stem cells, you know, mouse embryonic stem cells. Uh, containing a GFP reporter. So they're able to, again, complement the heart using this toxin based uh, knockout approach. All right, so that was their intraspecies cardiac complementation approach, but they did something similar to the vascular system as well. And they knocked out uh, via TIE2, which is like a master regulator of vascular development, they knocked out the endogenous mouse vascular system and then complemented it with the GFP-positive GFP reporter, um, uh, uh, mouse embryonic stem cells to actually restore the vasculature. So intraspecies was one thing, and that's really cool to see. But the reason I think this took it to the level of dev cell and really you know, took the study to the next level was the interspecies complementation approach that they did as well. So similarly, they did the NKX 2.5 knockout Cre to eliminate the heart in the, the mouse host, and also the TIE2 Cree via dithereotopsin to knock out the vascular system, and then instead of using mouse pluripotent stem cells for their complementation approach. They use GFP reporters, rat embryonic stem cells to to complement here, and they weren't able to get 100% complementation, but they it's it's pretty impressive. I think you know this is far as the farthest that I've seen in terms of the ability to complement to the vascular system and the, the cardiac system using a, another species as pluripotent stem cells. So this is a again proof of concept above anything else, but more translationally oriented to show that hey, maybe if this is possible in a mouse, maybe we can extend this down the road to something in a pig. And we've even covered papers recently on the show showing some early pig-human kidney complementation studies, for example. I think we had like a a cell paper that we covered a couple of months ago studying that. So some of these barriers are slowly being broken down. Um, It's not going to happen overnight where we all of a sudden see uh, successful Pay complementation that's harboring a uh, human heart. It's not going to happen overnight. It's still, in my mind, still at least 10 years down the road because there are just so many um, technical hurdles to overcome before this can become a reality. It is, again, extremely inefficient to to make this process happen. But hey, nonetheless, great to see the advances
0: in this field. Really exciting. Super exciting and I yeah I remember that pig story we just covered and we've covered these stories in the past and I always come with the criticism like oh yeah well you got a you got the kidney uh, but what about all the vessels the vessels it's like every cell every cell is two two cells away from a vessel um, they're ubiquitous but they you know pretty much were shoving in my face here telling me to shut up with my criticisms here because the tie tie two is ubiquitous every every capillary bed um is gonna be lost there and this the theory of toxic model and presumably replaced when they reach the efficiency they need to but um i'm gonna be a real i'm gonna be annoying here I'm not hating, not trying to throw shade, but like, what about, oh <laughs> uh, boy, what about like the parasites? Oh, no, I said it. So like, I don't know. I, I think like you, I think that there's a lot, there's still somewhere to go um, in terms of technical uh, hurdles and extending these results. So that's, I don't want to be critical because I think it's just another, it's a huge brick in the wall. It's like the, the, the cornerstone um, in terms of getting a vascularized, uh, permissive, but there's also all these other cell types that are not going to be driven by Tie2 or not going to be driven by Nkx in this case or whatever kidney-specific thing. So yeah, if you want a heart where you got some floppy capillaries, floppy vessels, maybe. <laughs> but I I'm I'm trying to fix my heart. It's already floppy enough. But now all joking aside, this is an amazing um, a technical tour de force. And in terms of concept, really extends our understanding of doing this complementary. You know, here it's two. You can imagine they extend it to three, four. You have a, a, you know, a mouse that's not even a mouse at some point because it has diphtheria toxin coming out of its ears in every organ (laughs) bed, but it's replaceable, I guess. I don't know. Seems like a really cool, I would have loved to be looking through the microscope at these these sections and these, you know, explants. Probably was so exciting.
1: Yeah, after a while the mouse is more diphtheria toxin than mouse. You know what I mean? But no, you're not being a hater. I think that's the actually number one limitation they actually mentioned in their limitation section of the study was that the they did a bunch of single cell RNA-seq analysis to evaluate the vascular system in that NKX 2.5, you know, whatever tied to DTA interspecies chimera, and they saw that it was really messed up. (laughs) They they saw that the gene expression was like way off it wasn't what it was supposed to be so and then they they actually just stopped there maybe it was like a reviewer comment to see hey can you extend this to an interspecies chimera as well but they didn't do much else beyond just the the visualization they didn't do that much else and they they straight up say we did not perform further experiments as this topic deserves an in-depth analysis that cannot fit in the present publication yeah
0: (laughs) no no kidding <laughs> yeah i would have to agree with that uh, plenty to talk about there uh, and we could go on but i'm pivoting i think that this is another kind of i don't want to call it cautionary tale um this is certainly a cautionary tale i want to call the interspecies interspecies chimera stuff uh cautionary tale because that's just progress in my view but um this uh is similar in that the vision I think of what it what it was is not necessarily aligned with the outcome or at least there's some reason for a bit of concern. Um and I I I think these are the most important stories for us to cover because it's all like, oh great, look what they did, look what they did. But also sometimes there's some unintended consequences of, of the intervention. Here we're talking about gene therapy, which we talk about all the time now. We're so excited about um, but the field has matured, amazingly enough, to the point that now we can see that whatever has a front has a back. And in some cases, um, that back needs uh, bears looking at, right? And uh, these treatments are becoming increasingly available. But the the studies I'm talking about, which are now decades old, were for like monogenic diseases like x um, these deaminase uh, deficiencies that led to immune, uh, you know, dysfunction, leukodystrophies, other genetic disorders. Uh, but the the early successes there, in terms of these kids coming out of the bubble, so to speak, were dampened by some uh, pretty alarming uh, cases of leukemia, which were directly linked, like we showed that it was because of his insertional mutagenesis from the transgene delivery. So that was really cast a pall in the field, but what it did, it forced us to move forward, get this safe harbor type research, Um, to make the the mutagenesis risk uh, to reduce it with better vector design. Um, But uh, in some of these patients with all these improved designs uh, of a a study a little while ago of patients that had undergone uh, therapy for sickle cell disease of 47 patients, two of them, so not a huge number, but significant, two of them Developed myelodysplastic syndrome and uh, acute myeloid leukemia um, between three and five years out from from the therapy, and it was shown specifically that it wasn't linked to the where there was no insertional mutagenesis. So the question is is why are you getting this you know myelodysplastic syndrome in these patients? Um, it also highlighted the idea that w- that we don't really understand what's going on, not just post. Gene therapy, but also what's going on in these patients um, who uh, struggle with these, you know, he- hematological malignancies. Uh, I remember in episode 241, we talked with Shannon McKinney-Friedman, um, and she made this point that I think about all the time: is that we're talking about curing these patients, but the the reality is they've been walking around with this banged up hematopoietic hyperinflammatory system that could have implications in terms of cl- clonal hematopoiesis and other. Uh, malignancy. So in this story, in a tour de force, which wasn't, wasn't a lot of patients, only six patients, but it was still a really heavy lift in terms of whole whole genome sequencing um, and follow-up with these patients over the course of years of these six patients that underwent uh, gene therapy for sickle cell disease. This was work from David A. Williams, uh, who was at uh, Boston Children's Hospital, Dana-Farber, um Peter Campbell, who's at the Wellcome in u k, and David Kent, who is at uh, York Biomedical Research Institute, the University of York. And what they did here is they tracked hematopoietic stem cells from these six patients who had sickle cell disease at pre and post gene therapy time points. So these were patients to be specific. they were undergoing this therapy for activation of fetal globin. this really esoteric clinical trial of like seven patients, I think they were trying to enroll where they use a microRNA to knock down uh, something to, to reactivate fetal globin. Um, and there was no information on the outcomes in terms of curing the disease, which you assume it worked, But they followed up these patients who were busulfane treated, by the way, in terms of to myoblate before getting the transplant. So that's an important uh, factor. They looked at them pre and post gene therapy. And what they found is that uh, the, the, there was like really polyclonal in terms of the mutational burden pre-gene therapy um, in some of these patients, not all of them, and maybe that could be attributed to that disease background. Um, and here's a really important key. After gene therapy, there were no clonal expansions um, that were, were identified on the gene-modified or unmodified. So a real key point, in this, uh, point to the study is they were able to track both the modified as well as the original unmodified cells. They showed there were no like new mutations or not an increased frequency of mutations. Um, but what they did find, which suggests that it wasn't like insertional mutagenesis, but what they did find is uh, that there was an increased frequency of these driver mutations that are uh, implicated in uh, clonal hematopoiesis that we've talked about in the show before, DNMT3A, EZH2. Um, and those were observed in, this is another key, in both the modified as well as in the unmodified cells. So the the bottom line here, I think the takeaway is that one, yeah, there's a pre-existing kind of polyclonality, and by in terms of the numbers, the increase of those, the frequency of those mutations, those driver mutations, was like a hundred fold. So this is significant. Uh, and the, the the takeaway for me is that you get an increase in these driving mutations. That the conclusions here are that they they come from the the myoablation. They come from the therapy itself and the clearance and then the uh, enabling uh, of clonal hematopoiesis as they fill that void and so those clones that have increased fitness become more highly represented the real question and follow-up here now that you've shown that these this mechanism exists to expand these clones is the expansion of these driver mutations going to ultimately lead to myelodysplastic syndromes or, or some other kind of hematological malignancy which would be such a terrible shame uh, because it would suggest that you know these therapies that are curative uh, may actually contribute to increased disease burden, but very importantly, I think shows that there maybe it's really important to refine the pathway uh, for delivery of of these cells and uh, these treatments. And there's a lot of work uh, that's been being explored to use non-myeloablative means of recolonizing the, the uh, bone marrow. So. I think there is a uh, upside on the back end but I think really uh, a, a bit a bit uh unfortunate I would say that this is this is observed.
1: Yeah this is one of those stories which honestly kind of sends a chill down your spine because the implications here are potentially enormous and I think this is a the timing of this story is very interesting as well because as you probably have heard there is this you know sickle cell gene therapy that was just approved in the UK for this GEVI, you know which is a the the joint therapy developed by Vertex and CRISPR Therapeutics um and if potentially some of these therapies have these unintended side effects of clonal hematopoiesis and uh, potential negative downstream impacts um that's that's dangerous that's potentially dangerous for the the whole field so i think it's just a a matter of time to, to see what's what's happening in these patients long-term. I mean, these patients are going to be receiving long-term care and long-term follow-up for the rest of their lives after receiving these these therapies. But I think it could be five to 10 years before we know how serious of an issue this is. Um, and also just more broadly, this particular field of clonal hematopoiesis, even independent of the gene therapy side of things, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, or CHIP, is an area of study that's... Sp- sp- rapidly, rapidly started to take off in the last five to ten years. So if you haven't heard of chip and chip and the the other type of chip, there's a lot of different types of chips, but this is clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. Basically figuring out what's going on with these different clones of hematopoietic stem cells over the course of a person's lifetime and seeing if they're associated with disease, right? Some people have shown that chip is associated with heart disease and other types of disease. So this is a, a very important area of study, even independent of the gene therapy angle, but I'm I'm not gonna lie to you. This is uh it's
0: got me worried a little bit. Yeah, you said a chilling is the word and it's what I was looking for because that, you know, these patients of these seven, they were as, as young as seven. They had one patient who was seven years old. Six who who they followed up, actually, here And one was seven years old. And then that that brings another question, right? Is because either you have a young person whose face is either getting a treatment that for their disease early to so that they can spare themselves, you know most of their life of the pain of sickle cell, let's say, for example, or they introduce this occult risk uh, of of CHIP, right? Uh, by getting that treatment, which is magnified, the younger they get it, the worse it is in terms of the long-term implications, right? I, I think, as you said, the the trials are gonna go forward the, and the key is to follow these patients. I think that's the best thing, the outcome for this story is to say, hey, we gotta monitor this, why? Because as I opened the story with two out of 47 patients, like, I don't know, run the numbers. Would you, I might take that it's sickle cell cure and I have a, what, 4% risk of myelodysplastic syndrome, I guess, easy for me to say sitting in this chair. But my point being is that we need the numbers. If it's a real thing, we need to do like an account. We need to weigh the risks and see whether it's, it's the right choice for, for patients or individual patients. And that's only going to happen if we follow follow these patients and follow the data so uh, an important uh, contribution and a lot as you were talking about there to think about in terms of chip because it's not just myelodysplasia, it's not just hematologic malignancy it's heart disease it's a lot of things inflammation so got to keep an eye on that we're going to talk to dr jose polo about something completely unrelated but it's going to circle back to the beginning of this show which is about these you know embryo early embryo interventions and models thereof. Uh, But before we get there, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. We'd like to introduce their one-stop resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments. Stem Cell's Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs learn about organoid culture from the experts at stem cell. Visit wwwstemcellcom discover dash organoids. All right, everybody, for today's episode, we have a special guest from across the globe, Dr. Jose Polo, who is director of the Adelaide Center for Epigenetics, a professor of epigenetics at University of Adelaide, also a professor in the Department of Anatomy and Developmental Biology at Monash University, uh, where he was previously stationed. The Polo group is interested in the transcriptional and epigenetic mechanisms that govern cell identity, in particular pluripotency and the reprogramming of somatic cells into induced pluripotent stem cells. I mean, but his research runs the gamut and has a very broad scope. We're going to try and cover a little bit the ground that the jose lab focuses on here on the show today but we're not going to cover it all so you're going to have to go to his lab website and read all his papers jose thank you so much for joining us on the show today thank you
2: thank you for the lovely introduction
0: well there's a lot to talk about with you i mean i had to keep it short um, but yeah, getting back to that and expanding on that a little bit, your research focus, as I alluded to, is, has been a bit of a moving target over the course of the last two decades or so. And I mean that in the best way. Uh, but the common denominator for sure is that your work is always at the leading edge of innovation and discovery, something that's really tough to sustain when you're moving around so much to stay in the lead. Um, what would you say are, are the overarching questions uh, that drive your your the research focus in your lab?
2: So, actually, I get that a lot because, yes, if you look at the different fields, it seems that I move a lot. But actually, in my head, I'm it's almost kind of boring. I'm not moving almost at all because I'm always trying to answer one question, which is how transcription factors, and therefore epigenetics, control cell fate. And that's the same question. So it's how cell A becomes cell B. And the reason that I try to answer it in many different models and, and paradigms is because A, I think that you need to answer it in all these different paradigms, and we can go through them shortly, in order to get a global vision, yes, because what happening in one may not happen in the other one, so as once we define all. And the other is because different people that work in my lab, and when I was a student, at postdoc, my supervisors, are interested in different things. So since I'm interested in that basic underlying question and why not be able to give that freedom? So yes, so for my PhD, I was working in transcription factors and B-cell lymphomas. Yes, under the supervision of Ari Melnick and, um, and how also B-cells mature, but always paying attention to how BCL-6 in this case or other transcription factors were controlling that thing. And then for my postdoc, I wanted to study actually very clearly a self fate paradigm. Yes, I interviewed with a lot of people and the idea was um, I could work in anything from cancer. So I interviewed in leukemia labs, in development labs, in very basic like labs. Um, and then and I met Conrad Hockerlinger and, and I told him, look, I want to understand how reprogramming into IPS happened. So I finished IPS in 2008 and I joined his lab in in 2008. And and imagine at that time was like one, two years after IPS cells had been discovered. And and so it was a perfect timing, so it was very nice. And then when I started my lab in Monash in 2011, I started, I kept working on that. And then I had people that was interested in aging, for example, sample docs which now they have their lab. And um, I was like, sure. As far as we look at this process, no? how a cell, a young cell become an adult cell, which is or age cell, which is the same as how cell A becomes cell B. So we did the same. And then I have another postdoc interested in Alzheimer's. So that's why I have all those papers in Alzheimer's. People are like, it is the same Jose Polo? Yes, it is. Uh, so and then the working reprogramming took me more and more into early embryogenesis, of course, and modeling that. And my latest work has been in that. But, but if you really think and you look my work, actually you will see that it's always that how cell A becomes a B.
1: Yeah, that's that's so cool. Now it just seems so obvious that that is the unifying (laughs) theme of your lab. I wish I thought of that earlier. How cell A (laughs) becomes cell B, the power of the transcription factor to actually specify cell fate. And of course, you know, it's so inherently... Uh, critical to make iPSCs because of the power of the Yamanaka factors and so on, but also really critical for, say, producing blastoids, these early embryo models that your lab has really been pioneering over the last couple of years, these eye blastoids. Um, I mean, it's no secret that this is probably the, and we've talked about this a lot, it's probably the hottest area of study in stem cell biology right now is modeling early human embryo development using some of these cutting edge model systems in the field. I mean, we've covered so many papers in this area. It seems like every other episode, we're talking about a high profile paper in early embryo modeling. And we've had some of the big names in this area on the show recently, like Jacob Hanna, Jun Wu, for example. Um, And I mean, like I said, your lab has had that nature paper recently, a couple of years ago on modeling human blastocyst by generating uh, eye blastoids by reprogramming fibroblasts. So tell us a little bit more about that approach um, that some of the technical challenges that you had to overcome to actually make it happen and maybe what's next for these eye blastoids?
2: Yes. So, yes, we published that actually back-to-back with Jun Wu. Yes, which, by the way, is a phenomenal scientist. Yes, I really love his work. And um, know as well, Jacob Hanna's work, of course. Um, so we were studying how cells reprogram, yes, trying to understand how human cells reprogram. And the year before that, we published another paper in nature, where we realized that the cells were, in order to become a, a naive or a prime uh, pluripotent state in order to achieve that, and there were also other cells being created in the media, especially if you were not changing the media. So, you know, doing reprogramming you in human cells, you reprogram for the ser- first seven days, eight days in fabulous media, and then you change it to, let's say, prime media or naive media. And the cells acquire that thing. Then, that in 2020 we realize, actually, if you put it in, in trophoblast stem cell media, the one from Okada et al., which is by the way is also an amazing paper, and, uh, and it has changed how placenta biology is studied. Um, we realize, oh, we can actually reprogram fibroblasts directly into trophoblast stem cells or induced trophoblast stem cells. Yes, um, and but. One of my postdocs at that moment and PhD students looked at the at the data, and it was clear that also you could see in primitive endoderm or hypoblast cells or cells that had also upregulated that signature during that time of reprogramming. So our initial idea was to look at what happened because we would like to understand how cells and how the transcription factors work. And I, one of my main Kind of frustrations is that for mostly until now every time somebody is talking to you about how oc4 binds to their targets or Sox2 or any pluripotent factor is always in isolation it's always in within let's call it the epiblast-like environment yes and in vivo that doesn't exist you have always epiblast with trifecta next to it mm. so we thought okay now that we have all this amount of cells, we can put them together, let them interact in 3D, and then we were going to check them away and find if OC4 changed, for example, the binding when it's surrounded by trophector cells, because they were all in a mix and now they could interact. But what we realized is that after five days, they were forming these balls, let's call it for a moment, yes, of cells. And that was basically they self organized very rapidly. So that, of course, caught our attention and at the same time, of course, there was all this mouse blastoid and thing going on, so we analyzed the structures and very rapidly we realized that there were blastocyst like structures and we measure everything and all basically our characterizations point out to that and basically that's how we became to be
0: yeah i mean that the the what was mind blowing to me about that study at the time is that it seemed so, and I am i don't want to make it sound like it was easy, but simple, you know? And the, when you describe it, it, it kind of comes through also. And that's some of the best results in science, I think are like that, where you have a whole complicated approach, you set it up, you have a question that's deep, and then the result just jumps out at you and you're like, oh, well, let's look at that. Um, But, you know, beyond that, that intrinsic capacity for self-organization in the context of, you know, reprogramming, which you would think would be a real challenge, um, besides that, you know, I think notable insight and and innovative finding there, uh, an interesting takeaway from from your own and also many other studies that are describing these embryo models is uh, that, yeah, there's a lot of ways that you can arrive. As a self-organized embryo model. In your case, is reprogramming. Sometimes they differentiate to the cells and then put them together. Sometimes they put them in, they differentiate in see 2 um, some transcription factors, some not enforced. Uh, but the the one common denominator is that while natural pre-implantation stage embryos are pretty robust, you know, in the face of embryo biopsy in the context of uh, such a reproductive technology, I mean, really beat these embryos up in the IVF clinic, and they give rise to a healthy embryo. Whereas embryo models thus far have fallen short of the outcome. I mean, let's be clear. Uh, Embryo generation uh, and these embryo are, uh, uh, you know, live-born embryos, so to speak, or fetus or conceptus or whatever you want to call it from these embryo models is not, I don't think, the important endpoint. To the contrary, the question that these models enable for study of basic implantation and other things are myriad. Um, but I got to ask, I'm annoying this way. Everyone I come on the show, who comes on the show does embryo models, I ask them the same aggravating question and I apologize in advance. But um, I got to ask because you got this deep appreciation of epigenetics, reprogramming, cellular plasticity, all the different things you've done, I think converge on a unique viewpoint and perspective on what it might take. Uh, to foster live born pups from an embryo model. Do you think it's like, uh, it's we're gonna reach that end point or be capable of reaching that endpoint ever? And if so, what, what's it gonna take?
2: The way that I see that question is, is a question of intention, yes. So the first thing that we take you say why we take, it will take we as a scientific community and part of the society to want to do that, first of all. So once you put that into mind, and We have helicopters or type of helicopter flying in Mars, yes. So we can do that. And how can I say no? We will never be able to do it. It will be very disingenuous, disingenuous to say something like that, yes. And you know, we have power plants. Like it's very like saying no. This is absolutely impossible. I think I think that will be very difficult because to have um, life. Be- just because development is super complex. So basically, I know that you say that the embryos are robust when you make them in IVF, but they are made in a way in the still with an oocyte and sperm, yes. Meanwhile here by aggregation of cells, yes, which is what we are doing, and by, as you said very well, by reprogramming or differentiation, yes, which is basically super interesting. I agree with you, the fact that for instance, Jungwu wu method, yes, which let's say the other ones are very similar, come by differentiating some sort of pluripotent cell, yes, naive or extended, et cetera, or 4C. And then they aggregate and self-organize. And we come from the other side and reprogram this, we get this intermediate state where this signatures are up and they self-organize. But still they can have cells that are in the wrong place, Signatures are not perfect, epigenome that is not perfect. So I think that that will take a long time. It's impossible, I don't think so. And But I don't know if, to be quite honest, if there will be appetite to do this in human cells, for example. Um, in the same way that uh, nuclear cloning, yes, have never been done in humans, theoretically, no? and nobody's trying to do it even. So, um, which by the way, if you were to generate some sort of thing, that's an easier way to do it, no? And, or at least having shown to be more productive across almost every animal. So um, I don't know if it will be done or not. Um, of course, there is a lot of changes that need to be, because as I said, it's a matter of if you want to do it. Um, of course, it's forbidden in almost every, I think in every jurisdiction. And I don't think that people want to do it. As you say very well, we are doing this to be able to understand those first weeks of development. And of course, some people said you can get even longer, you can take into, if you can reach organi- organogenesis, yes. That could change, of course, how we solve many, many diseases, generation of germline, et cetera. So there is how long you want to go for medical innovation, is up to, yes, to discussion.
1: Yeah, and I think that's fair enough. There's there's no need, right? I think it, you're absolutely right, and I liked your helicopter on Mars analogy as somebody who appreciates space. Um, you know, what's the need to actually do that next experiment? Technically, it may be possible, but it would take a number of years and who knows what the the future will hold but like you keep on saying and like we're emphasizing here on the show the real power of these models is for the you know the developmental side of it you know the understanding early development and now maybe opening up that black box of early development in a way to study it in a way that hasn't been done before and and you know some of these Models that you're developing in your lab have actually had other applications. For example, like during COVID, you use some of the early developmental models to study SARS-CoV-2 infection, right? I mean, you described this placental model of SARS-CoV-2 infection that revealed ACE2-dependent susceptibility and differentiation impairment in syncytiotrophoblasts, for example. And I mean, this is a a really relevant model, and we talk about the relevance of these models since a lot of clinical reports that have actually linked COVID-19 during pregnancy to negative birth outcomes and placentitis, for example. So, tell us a little bit about that avenue of your work—the kind of COVID modeling or developmental modeling—and maybe the broader utility of that model towards studying maybe other infectious diseases. So, tell us about that side of your lab.
2: Yeah. So, absolutely. So, so when in COVID started, uh, a group of stem cell scientists in uh, in Australia, we started calling each other and see how we could help. Yeah. So. We got in contact with Kanta um, Subarao, which is uh, a virologist, yes, and um, in the Peter Dorothy Institute in Melbourne. And um, we asked her, hey, look, we have the capacity to make any cell, basically, on humans. Can we help in anything? And she's like, yeah, sure, because we work with these monkey cells, literally, yes, and to test this. So in my case, it got my lab working in human cells. I was producing human lung cells and by chance. It was like a control for another experiment that we were doing. We needed a, an end, like an like endoderm style cell, so we were doing lung. So I started sending her lung cells, and she started doing the infections, and some other group sending cardiomyocytes and kidney, et cetera. And that paper actually was also published. And we discovered some things. And then I also was doing placenta cells. So I asked her, look, I have these cells, very difficult to find these in vivo, of course. And can we check it? Because we thought that they were expressing H2. And she tested, she tested the trophoblasts and the differentiated cells, the syncytiotrophoblasts and extravirus. And yes, the syncytiotrophoblasts were highly infected and led to the of that. And actually, it was we had that result much before than the clinical outcomes started to appear, and we have problem publishing the paper because they were saying, "Okay, the science look amazing," and but uh, so what? Like is there is no clinical implications on this, and we were like, "Well, but this may be predicting that this will happen." Yes, it's a great way. Like it's, it's giving you the potential of that, yes. And, and indeed, then the the as um, Aaron, you were saying, the the clinical reports start to appear. Yes. And that um, what helped us basically in um, saying okay we have now the mechanism of this placentitis, of these um, um, spontaneous abortions linked to these, etc. cetera. Um, so so that how we were and now yes and now we basically um, I think that not only that the entire world realized of how the potential of all these tissues derived from stem cells to test or new viruses or viruses or drugs or toxicology that people had been already looking, but of course COVID had um, completely made this more mainstream. There was very, you know, very nice work done with Zika virus and. And and mini brains. So um, this basically I've seen that this has expanded. And the reality is that early embryogenesis is almost inaccessible for modeling, usually. So this is an amazing way to do it if you want to know if there is in some uh, effect on that. Because at the same time, remember, those tissues that are formed during embryogenesis, including the placenta, do not exist in an adult cell, they move, they develop into adult tissues or they don't exist like in the case of the placenta. So this is almost the only way to see it.
0: Yeah, the uh, modeling infectious disease, I think, was a bit of a surprise to the field, although I'm sure a lot of people proposed that at the advent of derivation of human embryonic stem cells. It wasn't what jumped to mind for me, you know. On the contrary, when you talk about disease, it was more genetic disease or degenerative disease and using IPS cells, particularly in the mid-aughts after Yamanaka to, to you know, as opposed to SCNT, which you alluded to, to generate these patient-specific lines, right? And you've dabbled a bit in that too. And and now with post-intro, I can see how that fits in with your model, because it's not just how one cell Cell A becomes cell B, but there's all these cells that we don't appreciate the spectrum uh, of phenotypes that are present. And also how does a healthy cell become a a unhealthy cell? So all these transitions have many components and embryonic uh, iPS cells in particular have unique potential uh, toward those ends. so yeah, let's talk about that. You, you, you've invested in unraveling the, the pathophysiological mechanism of neurodegenerative disease, specifically Alzheimer's, as you mentioned. Um, now, the stories aren't exactly stem cell stories, uh, pluripotent stem cell differentiation, what have you, per se, but they really underscore to me how much we still have to learn about the diversity of cell types that are present in organs from embryogenesis to old age and in health and disease. I think we, we've been fixated on the cells that are present in the body, and maybe at particular stages, be it adult or embryo. Um, but maybe what we're missing is that there's a whole spectrum in health and disease, and across that aging uh, paradigm. Can you tell us about that work? These couple stories you had about Alzheimer's and how I mean, I see how it fits in uh, to to your general questions, but how does it how does it relate specifically
2: to the research focus in your lab? In the case of Alzheimer's, and a postdoc came to to me and said look i want to work with you it was after we published this paper where we generated together with julian goth and owen racham an algorithm to predict how to reprogram any cell into other cell the paper is called the algorithm is called Mogrify, and we basically published all these uh, conversions and and uh, she came to me and said i want to model alzheimer's basically i want to convert a non-alzheimer cell into an alzheimer's cell And I was working, one of my projects in the lab is to make better neurons and faster, et cetera. Yes, this started seven years ago and we haven't published yet. You know, things take long. Um, And and so I said, yeah, sure, like, let's do it. But it has to be from my perspective. First, we need to find out um, how the cells, what happened with the cells during Alzheimer's. And believe it or not, when I asked her, okay, let's unload single-cell transcriptomics of Alzheimer brains, yes, and versus non-Alzheimer brains, there was none. Which for me was like, how can be that nobody has done this? Like it was really surprising. So we embarked in doing that first to define the states, yes, so then we could try to reprogram. But of course, once you start that, you get into these rabbit holes, yes of where we started understanding, okay, look how the microglia is changing, how the neurons are changing, astrocytes, et cetera. My postdoc, her name is Alexandra Grumman. She was super interested in microglia. So then we went into that and basically we published a paper saying all the changes that happened in the brain upon development of Alzheimer. And then actually we published another paper where we tried to find in mouse what happened, yes, and we found this, it was a collaboration with Owen Rackham and Enrico Petretto. And we basically were able to describe uh, in mouse and then to model it, even doing differentiating the cells into microglia and basically by playing with some of the transgression factors and, and to create a more revert or create a more state of a microglia, Alzheimer, et So that's how it went. And at the same time, it was okay, because I have another postdoc, Christian Nefger, which he has his lab now, he was interested in aging. So we have been starting to work in aging of the intestinal stem cell system because we have a very clear phenotype. So again, we predicted a transition factor. We defined both states, predicted transition factors that we are able to reprogram an old cell into a young cell and, and that's what we did. And basically we did that reprogramming, um, but yes, that's how they all come together. And as, um, as, of course, all your audience know, I always think, I always say this to my friends that don't work with human stem cells I, or human pluripotent stem cells. I tell them, if you can do a mouse on that, you can do a human model. Yes, the same concept, arise. Uh, uh, right. So when they do all these complicated mouse knockouts, blah, 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 in order to have this, I said, you can do the same with a human cell. And then, get any tissue that you want by differentiating. So um, our approach was, okay, once we define that, we will be able to generate mini brains, et cetera, doing that. The truth is that my postdoc, Alex, left and went to the industry, and I decided to move to another place. So I've been basically trying to, disquiet that type of science, Alzheimer's science in my lab.
1: I mean, it's so cool to just get a feel for how you do science in your lab. I mean, one unifying theme that I heard there was, you know, both for the Alzheimer's story and the aging story, that was driven by a postdoc who had an interest in that topic. And you're willing to shift your lab focus under the umbrella of the power of the transcription factor to really focus on those areas of science. I think that's a really cool way of doing science. And we've talked a little bit about the broad scope of your lab and how you've been able to model Alzheimer's and aging and SARS-CoV-2 infection, of course, and early embryo models as well. Um, But I actually wanted to take a step back and just go back to your roots for a little bit, not all the way back, but, you know, your initial claim to fame perhaps was in the realm of IPS production, right? When you're working in Conrad Hochschild's lab at, um, you know, over there on the East coast during, in my mind, what was the golden age of reprogramming? (laughs) And maybe that's kind of controversial to say, but I mean, everybody was racing to unravel the mysteries of IPS reprogramming and how to make the process more efficient and compatible with different somatic tissue types, for example. I mean, I think a lot of trainees these days take reprogramming for granted in some ways, because it's become so commercialized, so standardized with all these different kinds of kits available to make reprogramming cheap and easy, pick whatever cell type If you want to reprogram, you can do it. I mean, it's sort of similar to CRISPR in that way, right? Because both are Nobel prize winning technologies that have become so refined and standardized within a decade or so after the initial high profile papers came out. But I mean, in your opinion, As somebody who has spent more than a decade investigating and refining IPSC reprogramming, what are some of the biggest questions that are still left in the reprogramming field? I mean, how do you think we can still improve the process, especially as IPS applications have shifted towards more clinical applications and translational applications? So what's next for reprogramming?
2: So, um, and by the way, guys, I, I heard... Your interview with Nicolas, where you were like, I cannot believe that a paper talking about reprogram- reprogramming got into nature, which it was very funny. I know that it came in a good way, but yes. So, what else basically can be discovered? And um, so, the epigenetic memory was a big, like, it was something that is in. Um, in my, in my opinion, the opinion of Ryan Lister and many people, is a big thing, yes, that now is very much, not very much solved, but we did a big step into solving that, yes, with the TNT process. Um, however, we're still not understanding, for example, the underlying mechanism of that, yes. Why these regions are protected, yes. And we think that that, of course, it happens in in normal development, and that why you have transgenerational, probably, epigenetic memory as well. So one thing will conduct you that one. But if you ask me one of the top questions in reprogramming now is why the exogenous transition factors always win. If you think about it, like you have a fibroblast, you can reprogram it into any other cell. Let's say you reprogram that fibroblast just to make it simple, into an endothelial cell and you put four transcription factors, let's say, and that fibrous will become an endothelial cell. Now, it's not that the four transcription factors of the endothelial cells are like super powerful for some reason, and will convert it. They win against the fibrous network. Because if you grab four transcription factors and you put it in the endothelial cells, I'm sure that you can reprogram the endothelial cells into fibroblast cells, yes. So it's, it's not that one network is, more, is stronger than the other one. That cannot be the case, yes. It's not the case. So it has to be something. And the other thing that we know, and we published this with Ryan Lister in one of our work, is not that the transcription factors, so basically the question is how they somat, they call it the original network, the original epigenome, how you shut down that one? Because you know the transcription factors that you put go and repress everything. So basically you are making just to make it, everybody understand, to make iPS cells. It's not that OKSM will go and repress the transcriptional network of a fibroblast, endothelial cell, neuron, and astrocyte, all of those endothelial cells cannot be because otherwise every gene will be a target of OKSM that down-regulate and they only up-regulate us. And that we know that that's not the case. So how that network disappears, to allow the other network to win, yes? I think that that's a major question. It has a lot of implications because also is the reason why, for example, what John Gordon used to say, or says, that is that the resistance to change of a cell, yes? So how that um, converts. So I call it basically the cellular elasticity. So basically how much you can can push a cell, yes, or the epigenome of a cell until and you release and it comes back to be the cell that it is, which the cell is doing constantly in the body because it gets all these signals all the time and they are signal and the cell is basically not changing or changing a little bit to be able to live in your, in your body, but you're still having skin cells, blood cells, et cetera. So they maintain their identity. And then how there's a point where you break, of course we call it the point of no return, but you break that and now the cell becomes the next cell. So I think that that actually the mechanism of that is still something that is not well understood. And and I would love to understand it because also has a big consequence in in vivo reprogramming, which I think that is the future of or the next future of in medicine. Yes. To reprogram yourself in in, in the body.
0: Wow.
1: That's a that's a powerful statement. I mean, (laughs) I got to say. In vivo reprogramming, it's uh, certainly got a lot of potential. I think, you know, I've obviously paid close attention to folks like Deepak Srivastava, who's been doing in vivo reprogramming and the the cardiac field, which is the field that I'm in. I mean, it has a tremendous amount of potential going from fibroblasts to functional cardiomyocytes. I mean, there's certain issues with immaturity and all that kind of stuff, but that's inherent to IPSCs as well. So it's not like you're going to completely avoid those situations by taking the IPS route. So I, I think that's a the really neat concept of cellular elasticity, and perhaps cells are much more elastic than we'd like to think because we they can turn into so many different things. We have fibroblasts, various cell types that are able to turn into iPSCs. You know, you can turn fibroblasts into neurons. You can turn all sorts of cell types into each other. There's potentially intermediate states. So I think you're going to be very busy <laughs> for a while now. That's for sure. Um, and you know we're wrapping things up in in a, in a few minutes here on the show, but we wanted to kind of, you know, end things with uh, a little bit more about you and your journey, since you've taken such an incredible journey to get to where you are as the inaugural director of the Adelaide Center for Epigenetics. And you know, you've know, you been, of course, born and educated in Buenos Aires, got your postdoc and doctorate in New York City, Cambridge, moving on to Australia. You've been across the world. I think it's a dream of a lot of scientists to have that international experience that you do. But of course, now you're at Adelaide, and perhaps it's not always known as a research powerhouse, but it does have a storied research history that folks may not know about. So I, I did my own research. I looked on Wikipedia, and I saw that Adelaide has been associated with a number of Pretty important discoveries like the uh, discovery and the development of penicillin, further development of space exploration, Wi-Fi, X-ray crystallography. So Adelaide has had a hand in developing a lot of critical pieces of technology. So now we know. Um, but you know, on the the biomedical research side of things, uh, I want you to give us your pitch as to why the University of Adelaide is such a great place for biomedical research. In in the case of Potential students, potential postdocs who may be listening to the show. Why should folks really focus on Adelaide as a great place to do research?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So, in Adelaide, is for the in the last years has the uh, the University of Adelaide has uh, basically invested a lot in biomedical uh, discovery and clinical sciences. Yes, and uh, as part of that, for example, generated. Uh, or created this institute called SciGenzi, which um, is dedicated to cancer, which I'm also part of that, and I'm a program leading the cancer and epigenetics part of that. So we have this new institute, we have um, other institutes coming up. We are all basically one next to each other. It's a new medical uh, precinct, yes. Um, and it has realized that basically um, you need to have top science in order to to teach good medicine. And also it has a lot of consequences for the economy and, and for medicine. So with that in mind, yes, and they recruit me and they allow me to recruit other also very talented junior group leaders, yes. So I we have recruited and people from Harvard, from Switzerland, from the Creek, etc., into our center and institute and, and all doing very good science. I think that what happens now is and it's not so difficult to to have a great institute because the infrastructure that you need is not so difficult to obtain. It used to be very difficult, yes, you needed to be in the top places in the world in order to have i don't know even sequencers like fifteen years ago, but now I have a sequencer in my bench yes and and the same with other technologies space tar- uh, spatial transcriptomics or other time. So getting the infrastructure is not a problem. Of course, it's the, it's, the, it's the environment, it's the culture, yes. And that's something that you can change. It can go good, or it can go well, or it can go bad, yes. But um, basically you can, there is no reason why any place cannot become an amazing place to do science. So the University of Adelaide decided that that's what they wanted and we have recruiters and we are trying to do that. And it's becoming an amazing place to do science. So from a scientific point of view, we don't have any, I would say there is nothing that theoretically we cannot do. And then culturally is becoming, because it's growing, you know how it's to arrive to these places that are new and growing and they want to do full of young group leaders trying to to make their life and in science. So it's very exciting place to be, yes, at the moment. Um, Also the universities, like the two main universities of Adelaide are fusing, are merging to become the Adelaide University. So there's also a lot of bus going around there. And so it's a good place. So that from a scientific point of view, now, then from a life point of view, it's an amazing place to be, I have to say that it's like it's a great city. And it's for me, it's enough big and enough small to be comfortable. Yes. And 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 so you can be in any place in 30 minutes or less. And and it's of course the weather is beautiful and uh, um, it's a great, it's a great place to live and to do science again, because the main reason is because we want to make that place a great place to do science depends on us now, basically. Yes. So, um, and having that control is, 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 is an amazing thing. Yes? So yes, if I were a postdoc or a junior group leader, or even a PhD student, no doubt I will come here. You can do top science, in a beautiful country like Australia, in a beautiful city like Adelaide. So why not? Yes, and you don't need to be always in the main hubs yes, to do amazing science.
0: Yeah, I, I like what you said there, because there is this legacy in science of like, oh, the, the prestige institutes, and they have, they're the only ones with all the fancy toys. And I would say part of this era that we live in now is, and maybe it's a matter of intent, as you're describing, where you just have to create the, these centers where you consolidate the technological resources that can be shared in this core model like the IMBA. You know, we talked to Jurgen Knoblik and others at the IMBA where they they just nucleate the science there with a lot of tech and a lot of core services that in that case are free. I'm sure they're accessible there at Adelaide. And then you surround it with a bunch of really passionate young, I love the idea of young researchers who are unbound by you know all that other legacy stuff, um, so I I agree. I mean I'm an old man. I'm, I'm circling the drain. But if I had to, if I had to do it again, oh man, I'd be right there with you if if I were welcome. Uh, just to finish up, uh, we have a couple of peripheral questions, and I know you kind of addressed this first one uh a little bit in terms of uh what the great unanswered question in terms of reprogramming is but if you could answer any one single scientific question apart from that or multiple questions i'm sure with the amount of work you're doing you got plenty um regardless of your expertise uh, or chosen field what what would that one or multiple questions
2: the most important questions be i think that for me one of the top questions is consciousness what is that something that actually is not completely disconnected of what we do, yes, with the advance of organoids, yes, and brain organ, et cetera. So I think that the consciousness is a, a super, like a, a, that question is super important to answer, yes, especially where we're moving with, again, in our field and in AI, you know, those, both of them are in basically to around that. And that's something that I would love to, probably to have answered. That's from more directly from very far, which is, again, far, but they are all connected at some point, is the nature of um, time and space. Yes, I'm a frustrated physicist and also philosopher. So, um, uh, yes, uh, I think that that question is also an amazing question. And I mostly spend my time, free time, listening to or reading books about um, those two subjects. So if I were not a scientist, I probably would have been a philosopher. Actually, I quit at some point science to go to the school of philosophy, but then I came back running (laughs) after looking around how it was. Uh, But yes, um, those two questions at the level of metaphysics and what we are, we now connect with metabiology, now the consciousness question, Yes, they are the two questions
0: that I would love to be involved. Wow. I mean, that's some deep, deep, you're definitely getting your money's worth there in terms of asking some important questions. Those are some of the toughest ones out there. And you, you answered there right in the in the other part there for your answer, what our second question was, which is, if you were in a science, what, what would you be? And I think, I mean, truly, I think with the aggregate of all the the research that you do, I could see how you're already in the realm of philosophy. I know you're a hard scientist. But there's so much thinking, I think, around it and like kind of thought experiment framework. And hearing you talk about it, I could see how it would be a really adventure to train with you because you really uh, go outside of the box. And I think to make those pivotal innovations and discoveries, you need to think in a way that hasn't been been considered before. And as you described Adelaide there, it sounds like a really, really uh, good environment for fostering that type of research and thinking. so. I'm envious uh, mostly of, uh, you know, between Monash and Adelaide, I'm sure you get plenty of beautiful days and and uh, plenty of lovely late evenings too, from what I hear about how they do over there and down under. Um, but Jose, thank you so much. It's been such a, a fun conversation with a, a philosopher, warrior, scientist. And I got a lot to think about coming away from this. and I think all our listeners will too. So thanks for sharing.
2: Thank you so much, for, honestly, for giving me the opportunity to be here and discuss this.
0: All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Until the next episode, thank you guys so much for listening.